Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. Started by Padre Gautuma and me, Paul Doran, in Belfast in 2011. And we love it. And this is the 10 by 9 podcast. Things here are getting back to some sort of normality right now. I hope things are getting better wherever and whenever you're listening to this. We have three stories on the podcast for you, and we're going back in time to January 2021. Helen McClemens told this story via Zoom from her kitchen table in Belfast. The theme was tea, and she started with a few minor technical problems. You all hear me okay, yeah? All good? They're all mute. Have I not all muted myself? No, no, you're okay. They're all mute. Okay. Once I was sitting in first class on a reclining seat as the stewardess handed me a glass of champagne. Are you sure you can't have one too? I asked my travelling companion, Erin, but she shook her head and said no, that it would have breached her contract. I downed my glass alone, but it didn't taste like champagne as I remembered. This was sour and astringent and made me pucker my lips. It's the morphine, explained Erin, who was a nurse. It makes things taste different. Is there anything I can do to make you more comfortable? Asked the stewardess, who was hovering, ostensibly to help, but clearly wanting to know what had happened to me. It was possibly the first time she'd had to tend to a passenger with a metal frame drilled into their head to stabilise their fractured neck. I think I'd just like a cup of tea, please, I said. Me too, said Erin. The stewardess came back a few minutes later with a pot and two china cups and a teeny tiny milk jug. She hovered and before Erin had begun to bash the tea bag about with a spoon, she asked the question, what happened to you? Planes are a bad place to open up. The thing about opening up in a plane is that people may wish to open up back and you can't escape when you're cruising at 40,000 feet. I had an accident, I told the stewardess. I broke my back and my neck. She nodded, wanting more. I should have died, I said, but I didn't. I think someone was looking after me. They were, she said, nodding vigorously. Jesus, Jesus was looking after you. He looked after me too. I smiled back warily. As a former evangelical, my antennae was up. I believed, but I could already tell that I didn't believe in her version of God. But it was too late. She had a captive audience, literally, as my head and torso were encased in a steel frame. I'm a Christian, she said, her eyes wide and her face looming close. Jesus saved me. He really did. He actually saved me. A man was coming to rape me and Jesus stopped them. My eyes widened. I'd come off a late flight and was getting my car from the underground car park, she went on, and I heard someone run up behind me and he held a knife to my throat. Don't scream or I'll kill you, he said. But I shouted, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you to stop. Aaron and I looked on, our tea untouched. And he let me go and he dropped the knife and he ran away. We exhaled. We were relieved for her that this was how it had ended. But you, she said, 
bringing her face as close to mine as my frame would allow. Are you saved? Well, I stuttered. I mean, I mean, I believe you must be saved. She went on. You must receive him, know him as your Lord and Saviour. After spending my formative years within the confines of a church and my university years then distancing myself, I was no longer comfortable with all this terminology. You need to be saved, she repeated, and I could feel her spit land on my cheeks as her fervour increased. Her voice climbed several octaves higher. After this, how can you not be? Sensing my mounting discomfort, my nurse managed to impress upon her that this wasn't the time and to go. Don't let that woman come anywhere near me again, I pleaded. Another steward came over when he saw that there was a bit of a commotion. He had, I recall, a distinctive shape of head accentuated by his baldness. His eyes behind his tortoiseshell glasses rolled upwards as my nurse explained, we'd rather the zealot remained elsewhere for the remaining 12 hours to Los Angeles. I'll bloody see to it, he said through clenched teeth. She has only been at it again, we heard him tell another stewardess. I assume she was directed to economy. Doubtless there were other souls there in need of saving too. This was not the first brush with Christianity since the morning. Earlier, I had been taken by helicopter from the hospital in Dunedin to a tiny airstrip where a little plane sat waiting to zoom me up to Auckland to get a flight to LA and then on to Heathrow. The plane was run by Christian Airways, but happily there was no proselytising, only a packed lunch made by the pilot's wife with a large flask of tea and a slab of fruitcake. She had pressed the lunch and the flask into my hands while covering my knees with a tartan blanket. I was sipping the tea as the plane began to make odd creaky noises and veered suddenly to the left. The nurse beside me reached for my hand. There were only the two of us on board, save the pilot. Erin was trying, but her features couldn't quite arrange themselves into a smile. It'll be okay, I said, but then again, it may not. Life's a bit shit like that. I wasn't usually so stoical. I shook so much on the Air France flight from Paris to Reunion Island in 1999 that the muscles in my thighs pulsed and flickered for a week. This time, though, I had nothing left to fear. I was beyond fear and sadness because I had tumbled down a mountainside a fortnight before and shattered my lower vertebrae, my pelvis and the C7 in my neck. It was odd that I wasn't paralysed, odder still that I remained able to speak and eat, and albeit with immense difficulty to walk. Still, I didn't feel very lucky. My boyfriend, who had fallen with me down the same mountain, had died at the scene. For the brief period of our romance, which at one year and eight months was still in its infancy, I had feared losing him. He was my first thought when I woke up and the last as I fell asleep. This was love in all its terrible beauty and now it was gone. The plane made stuttering, juddery noises and the pilot's voice came over the tannoy. The engine's not too happy at the moment, he said, epitomising the understatement I'd come to recognise in most New Zealanders. 
So I'm just wheeling around here and we'll get our tip top again. He perfected a remarkably smooth landing for a small sick plane. We taxied to a halt and out he hopped in a sprightly manner for a man who looked at least 70. Two mechanics appeared and tinkered a bit, deemed us ready to go again and waved us off jauntily to continue our journey to the airport in Auckland. In a way, this journey home would be an indication to what my longer journey into grief and recovery and starting again would be like. There would be many difficult situations in the future and many challenging encounters to overcome. But luckily, like my pilot and those two mechanics who appeared, I had many people around me to get me airborne once more. And often it was over a restorative cup of tea. Thanks so much, Helen. That was brilliant. And what a bitch of a flight attendant. Thanks too to husband Stevie for sorting out your issues at the beginning. And if you want to hear Helen's original story about her accident, you can hear it on podcast 31. If you have a story for 10 by 9 or you want to know more about what we do, check out our website, 10 by 9com There's plenty of info there, including all our 2022 dates and a few other surprises. Okay, let's stay with the tea theme. And what a great theme it was. Here's Richard O'Leary. I grew up in the far south of Ireland, in the People's Republic of Cork. My family lived on the Lee Road. As a child, whenever I was asked where I lived, I would hesitate. I would hesitate because in Cork, our address was infamous. The Lee Road was mentioned in one of our folk songs, a song called Johnny Jump Up, sung by, among others, Christy Moore. Trigger warning, I'm about to do a bad rendition of an Irish ballad. I went up the Lee Road, a friend for to see. They call it the madhouse in Cork by the Lee. But when I got up there, I don't like to tell. They had the poor crater tied up in the cell. I lived on the Lee Road, the location of what everyone then called the madhouse. A huge Victorian red brick building that towered over the river at the edge of the city. Adults told children it was a place for crazy people for people who didn't fit in, Cork Psychiatric Hospital. I'd heard groom rumors about life in the hospital. However, by the mid 1970s, as a young boy, I became acquainted with one of his patients. His name was Dan, or at least that is the name my mother said he told her. At that time, some patients were permitted to leave the hospital to take a walk. One warm summer's afternoon, outside our house, Dan called out to my mother. He asked for a drink of water. My mother, a kind-hearted soul, offered a stranger a cup of tea. In subsequent visits, all I ever recall him saying to my mother was, Lady, can I have a cup of cha? Dan was true cork, using the colloquial word cha to refer to tea. And he said it in that distinctive cork lilting tone. That's how we kids came to call him Kapacha. When Dan knocked on the kitchen door and called out, Lady, can I have a cup of cha? My mum would let him into the kitchen and sit him down on a stool. Mum would reach for the tea caddy, the caddy of Barry's tea. Barry's is a tea blended in cork. Mum would set out in front of Dan a fine cup and saucer. And mum would prepare a cheese sandwich. She would carefully cut off the crust 
and then slice the sandwich into dainty triangles and serve it to Kapucha. As a child, I watched Kapucha. He reeked of cigarette smoke and his fingertips were brown. He made some jerky movements with his head and he had crossed eyes. Kapucha heaped four spoons of sugar into his teacup. Mum might say to him, it's warm today or it's cold today. Kapucha didn't really converse. I suppose he was what we might now be described as nonverbal. He never stayed very long. Very occasionally, when mum was out, when Kapucha called, and so it felt to me to respond to him. I made him a pot of Barry's tea. I still have a Barry's tea, tea caddy. I set out a fine cup and saucer and I prepared him a cheese sandwich, remembering to cut off the crust and slicing the sandwich into dainty triangles. I realized we had at least one thing in common. Copper Chai liked his tea as much as I did. Copper Chai called at our house for a number of years. Then he no longer came. My mom made some inquiries and was told that he had died. I asked mom, did Barry's tea come from China? Mom said, no, it came from Africa. I left the Lee Road and Cork and even Ireland. I suppose I felt that I didn't fit in. In 1987, I went to live in the People's Republic of China. Being a tea addict, I brought with me to China, my own familiar brand of tea, my Barry's tea. I may have been the only foreigner that year who brought tea into China. A few weeks into my residency in Beijing, and I realized that my tea caddy, my tea caddy was empty. I was out of Barry's tea. I realized that I would have to learn quickly the Chinese language to be able to locate and purchase in a shop in Beijing a Barry's-like tea. The Chinese language is a tonal language with four different tones. Take a Chinese sound, for example, the syllable ma. When you change the tone in which you say the ma sound, you change the meaning. Depending on the tone of your voice, ma in a high-pitched tone, ma, can mean mother, and ma changed to a dipping tone, ma, can mean horse. We all need to be able to distinguish our mothers from a horse. My Chinese teacher, Teacher Chen, tried to teach me the four tones. I struggled with the second tone, a sort of rising singing tone. I told you I can't sing. To help me, Teacher Chen pointed down to his mug of tea. And at the same time, he raised his arm in a rising manner and said the word cha in a rising tone. Not to be confused with cha in the high-pitched tone, which means fork. Hearing this, I fear that in China, when I'd ask for tea, the Chinese wouldn't know that I was trying to say, or worse, I'd been given a fork. Then I realized I'd heard this word cha before. I was reminded of the many times I'd heard Dan ask my mother for tea. Lady, can I have a cup of cha? And how he did so in his lilting cock tone. Who would have thought that our Dan could pronounce Chinese? 33 years ago in Beijing, I went into a shop. I took a deep breath and said to myself, just imagine you're back in Cork and speak like Dan. I approached the Chinese shop assistant. I knew she was wary of me. 
most Chinese viewed us foreigners as crazy. I said to the shop assistant, Tong Zhi, Ni Mai Bu Mai Cha. I waited. The shop assistant ambled down the counter. She lifted up a large tea caddy. My request had been understood. She had heard me say, Comrade, do you sell tea? She did not hear, Comrade, do you sell forks? I could ask for tea in Chinese. Thank you, Dan, for helping me to master Chinese and to succeed in getting my own cup of cha. Ah, Richard, you put me in the mood for a nice cup of Barry's tea. What a great story. And remember, many of our Zoom stories also live on our YouTube channel. If you want to put a face to the tale, they're all in 10 minute chunks or so. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but you can help us out via Patreon or PayPal. Our overheads are low, but just now our income is lower. There are links at the website, which is 10by9.com, but of course, the greatest support you can give is just to listen. Okay, on to our third story, and we're staying in the Far East with another native of Cork. Cork people love to travel, obviously. Here's Sinead Gary. I was driving home from some essential retail the other day when I got what is surely my family's version of a Whamageddon. Normally, this is when you hear for the first time in the season the song Last Christmas by Wham, but for us, it's fairy tale of New York. It was my brother Kieran's party piece. He had a false front tooth, relic of a bike accident from when he was 11, and for the song, he would whip the tooth out for Shane McGowan's part and pop it back in for Kirsty McCall's. Kieran died suddenly in 2011 and 2007, sorry, from an undiagnosed heart condition. So whenever the song comes on the radio, it always calls as a little bittersweet sweet jolt. My most memorable rendition of this party piece was in December 2005 in a bar called the Wegu Cook in Gumi, South Korea, where Kieran was living at the time. It was his first Christmas away from home, and my wife and I decided we'd go and spend it with him. He and I sang Fairy Tale of New York as a duet, and it brought the house down. Korea is an absolutely beautiful country, mountainous and forested with temples, national parks, beautiful lakes, dramatic coast and clean, well-managed cities. It was an excellent place for a holiday, and someday I'll have to go back when it's not freezing the balls off a brass monkey. We went in the middle of December, and for most of our time there, it was about minus 10 Beautiful, sunny and bright, but freezing. We spent a couple of days in Gumi adjusting to the jet lag and planned to travel on the days my brother was working. And then when he had his holidays, we would go to Seoul together for a few days. My wife Maha planned a couple of adventures for us on our traveling days. One involved taking a hop on hop off ferry from a small town through a lake where we could disembark at various locations and go for walks, including around a fairly spectacular waterfall, finishing up at Danyang at the other end of the lake where we could catch a bus back to Gumi. I did mention that it was really cold and that our seasickness means that we both have to be outside at the very front, standing at the rail with our eyes fixed on the horizon in order for the whole experience not to end in a load of vomit. But she made it very clear that the magic of the environment would make it entirely worthwhile having to be removed from the ferry with the assistance of a blowtorch. So we went. The full story of that single day takes more than 10 minutes to tell, but suffice it to say that ferries don't run when the lake is partially frozen. We ended up busing to a park and going for a walk and then continuing on to Danyang by bus. 
The town itself is on a bend in the river and the views from the bridge are absolutely glorious. We tried to walk across the bridge to take some photos, but we only made it a few hundred meters when the cold wind forced us back. The wind chill was absolutely fierce. We looked in at the bus station and it wasn't a great place to wait. There was a single solid fuel stove in the middle of a big hall with doors to bus bays opening and closing every few seconds. And it didn't look like it had any options for food. So we went to try and find something to eat. We were in a strange town with very little signage in Latin script. Everywhere else we'd been by this point either had some sign in English, in English or at least some signs in Latin script and we knew the word for beer. Apart from that, I had a vocabulary that stretched to hello, I'm Irish, please, thank you, goodbye. We were hungry and cold and we couldn't tell from looking at the signs whether they said beer, toilet, hardware, yes, we serve horse, not a clue. We went into one small convenience store and bought some crisps to take back to the bus station. On the way back, we saw a sign that had a picture of two coffee cups on it. One of them had a little flower in it. Thank the Lord, I thought, hot coffee. We went down the stairs to a dark basement room with bench seating. There was a coffee pot on the counter. When we walked in, one of the women behind the counter elbowed the other in the ribs as they gawped at us. I asked for a coffee. And one of the women went, oh, coffee, like she'd never heard of it before, and ushered us to a seat near the stove. She moved a sleeping girl from the bench to make space for us. We looked around. There were a couple of sleeping girls and a few abandoned handbags. We looked at each other. Yeah, we were in a brothel. Maha wouldn't let me take a photo. I wouldn't let us leave at least until we drank the awful coffee and thawed out a little bit. We went back to the bus station and asked for bus tickets to Gumi. The girl handed them to us and told us, for Gumi, change at Gyeongju. I said, thanks, and went to have a look at the map. Gyeongju, or Gyeongju, or Gyeongju. This could be three towns. We went back to the desk. I asked the nice girl, which Gyeongju do we need to go to? She said, yes, for Gumi, change at Gyeongju. I said, yes, which Gyeongju? Yes, she said, for Gumi, change at Gyeongju. I said, can you show me Gyeongju? She said, I will call my friend. She speaks English. I was very grateful. A minute later, she put her friend on the phone. I said, do you speak English? Yes, she said. My friend says, for Gumi, you have to change at Gyeongju. Thanks, I said. Which Gyeongju is that? Yes, she said. For Gumi, change at Gyeongju. We gave up. Freezing, hungry, and with no idea how we were going to get home, we went back to the solid fuel heater and opened our crisps. To my utter disgust, they were sweet. We must have looked completely dejected because a little man came up to us and started chatting away. I didn't understand a word, so I said the only thing I knew how to say, hello, I'm Irish, my name is Sinead. 
He fired back at me in rapid Korean, a stream of language of which I understood not a single word except for the words Arlandu and Eurovision. He looked utterly delighted. A tall bus driver was striding across the bus station. The little man called him over and he said a lot of words. Again, the only one which I recognized was Arlandu. Ah, Arlandu, said the bus driver, blah, 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 blah. Eurovision and walked off. What the fuck is this? I thought I felt like we'd fallen into some kind of parallel universe. Next thing, the little man took my elbow and he started dragging me away to I knew not where. I called for my hat to follow me. He took us through a door I hadn't seen into a tiny canteen, plumped us down on the seats, ordered us each a bowl of steaming hot udon, paid for it, smiled and said goodbye. We very gratefully ate the udon, but at the end, we were no closer to figuring out where we were going. We went outside and looked at the buses to see if we could see any destinations that we could match up to on the map. We asked a couple of people, Gumi? Nobody seemed to know which bus we should be looking at until a tall man leaned out the driver's window of one of the buses. It was our Eurovision loving friend, the tall bus driver. He said, Gumi, that bus change at Gyeongju. And that's how Ireland's connection with the Eurovision helped us find the right bus connection five and a half thousand miles from home. Thanks so much, Sinead. You describe Korea beautifully. Such a gorgeous country. And who would have thought Eurovision was a thing there? And that is it for this podcast. We love hearing from you, so keep in touch with us on social media, email, which is story at 10 by 9com or via the website, which is 10by9.com. Keep an eye out for upcoming events and themes and tell as many people as you can about the podcast. It is the best way to get noticed. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with another podcast soon. For now, though, bye-bye.